Psalm 63. I love those Philippians 1-6 testimonies. For a couple reasons. I love, I love somebody sharing what God's doing in their lives. I love to see how everybody's story is a little bit different. Even if stories are similar, they're a little bit different. It may have been a family, but it might have been a different family, and we thank God for that. When I hear somebody else talk about their story, about how God's been working in their life, it, it makes me think about mine. And you start thinking about your, your past and the years and your childhood or the teenage years or young adult years or whatever it is you start looking back on, there's a lot to, to recall and to be encouraged about how God has been working. When you hear a verse like Philippians 1.6 and you start thinking of, man, I'm a work in progress, you look back and see, I, I really am a work in progress, that God is, God is doing something. And I'm encouraged to think that God has given me a family, a wife and kids. And I want to ask you all if you've ever been to that place in your life where God has so like overflowed His goodness into your life that you stop and you're still and you're reflecting and you think, man, God's been good to me. I want to ask you if you've ever been there. And if you have, you know that it's not because you got a new car or got a raise at work. You might say thanks to God for that. I hope you do. But it's not usually that as much that makes you say, man, he's been good to me. It's usually things that have a little bit more meaning, a little bit more significance. I was there the other day. It was Friday, and I had been working, and I came home from work, and to me, it felt like a good day Friday. The kids knew it was the weekend. Everybody was in a good mood. So we started wrestling in the house. We had some time before we were going anywhere. And we just started wrestling, which we do a lot. Me and the boys were wrestling. And it's, it's about to the point now where I, I can't beat the three boys. They, they beat me up. And, and that's fun. So we're wrestling and wrestling. So then I told them that I was done fighting them. I was going for Carolina. For those of y'all that don't know, that's our oldest girl. She's two years old. And I told them that I'm going for Carolina and they're going to try to stop me. So we're wrestling and five minutes turns into 15 minutes. This is going on and on. And we're wrestling and I'm, I'm going hard after Carolina and I'm trying to be serious um, to make her think that and that I'm serious and make the boys think that I'm serious. So, so I'm going after her and she's running around the house and she's getting scared and she's starting to cry. And the boys are trying her best to stop me. And finally, she gets backed into the corner and I'm raging, pretend raging. I'm raging, ready to just destroy her. And she stops and says, no, Daddy, we're a family. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved it, right? Good, good answer. Bad guys trying to get the girl, three brothers are there doing everything they can to try to stop it. And she cries out with great seriousness, don't do this. You're hurting our family, dividing our family, injuring our family. It's like at that moment she was thinking as a two-year-old, why would you try to hurt or divide our family? You know, Val and I work hard to emphasize family. To get our kids to love each other and to love us and to be a home filled with love. That was a little window to me of, of us making progress in that area. 
it caused me to say, man, God, thank you, God, for that. I want my daughter to prioritize a strong family. Psalm 63, which we're going to look at today, is David being in that moment. Man, God is good to me. But what is so real in Psalm 63 is that David doesn't have in mind any of circumstances, any circumstances that are causing him to think life is good. See, we are often confused and we think life is good when God's given us good things. The very logo of the company Life is Good has a guy in a lazy river on an inner tube. Life is good when I'm in an inner tube on a lazy river. But that's not what we mean when we say life is good if we know God. David, as the uh, inscription tells us at the beginning of Psalm 63, David is in the wilderness. David's in the desert. David is on the run. David knows that the bad guys are coming after him and he is fleeing, hiding. And the result is Psalm 63. David has his eyes on God. David has a love for God in his heart. And David sings this song. Psalm 63 is a lot different from Psalm 51 that we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go to our website and listen to the sermon from last week on Psalm 51. David is caught in sin, broken for his sin in Psalm 51, and he is crying out to God for mercy and for forgiveness to be made clean, for his heart to get right with God. It's an awesome psalm, 51 is. Psalm 63 is different. He's still not to green pastures. He's on the run. He's in the wilderness. But he's worshiping God. His heart is filled with worship for God. I want to read to you, though, about this psalm, what one man says. He says, This is unquestionably one of the most beautiful and touching psalms in the whole Psalter. Commentator Don says, as the whole book of Psalms is an ointment poured out upon all sorts of sores, a care cloth that, supply, that supplies all bruises, a balm that searches all wounds, so are there some certain Psalms that are imperial Psalms, that command over all of our affections and spread themselves over all occasions. Universal Psalms that apply themselves to all necessities. This is one of these. And accordingly, St. Chrysostom testifies, listen, that this psalm was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of this psalm. People in history have seen Psalm 63 as one of the very best. People in history have seen this psalm as one that kind of rises above the others in the Psalter, which are the 150 psalms, and seen this one as one that just touches the heart for those that love God. And so I'm asking you today, have you been there? Have you, found, have you felt yourself and found yourself loving God from the heart? And I pray that today Psalm 63 would touch that and draw you even closer to it. Charles Spurgeon says that David might have been in the wilderness here, 
But according to the psalm, his heart was no desert. What a thought. He may have been in the desert, but his heart was not a desert. I want to ask you today, was your, is your heart desert-like? Or is God there? Read with me, if you will, Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to, into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. What a psalm. In this psalm, I want you to see David from three perspectives. The first, David's present devotion to God. Present. Next, I want you to see David's past awareness of God. And then we want to end it with his future hope in God. His present, His past, His future. His present, His past, His future are seen in Psalm 63. His present devotion to God, His past awareness of God, and His future hope in God. This is all of Him. And it's seen in the desert, in the dryness, in the wilderness, in the loneliness. It is seen. So let's begin. Oh God, You are my God. What a statement. The Bible teaches us in the Ten Commandments that we are not to take God's name in vain. We teach ourselves that we are not to ever say the name of God if it's not used in a way that is worship to Him. And yet, usually when we say, oh God, we are meaning it in a way that is not like you are the King. Like I'm, I'm bowed down. Certainly in our culture today, the word God is used too loosely. I want to encourage you that you would put a guard on your lips and that every time God or Lord or Jesus comes out of your mouth, it is with the utmost respect and honor toward Him. May you be a witness to everybody around you that your God is good and your God is holy and your God is your Savior and you only want to ever represent Him in that way. David here says, oh God, but he doesn't say it in a way that is anything negative. He's in the wilderness. He's alone. He is on the run. And his heart feels, God, you are my God. He has a relationship with God. He has a Father in heaven as Jesus taught us to pray. And David is crying out to him. David knows that he is in a relationship with God in which he can say, that is my God. It's not that he believes in a God. It's not that he believes that there is one God. He believes that there is a God who is personal that makes himself the father of those who hope in him. I pray that today you have a God and that you would say he is my God. 
May we not be those who know God from a distance, see Him from a distance. We know that there must be something about Him because we come to church and there are those who really cling tightly to Him, but He's not that to you. May He be your God. And I encourage you here today that anybody who comes to God through faith in Christ can be a child of God. You today can say, God is my God, that God the Father is my Father, and I am His son, I am His daughter, I am His child, because He has made me His child, and because He has made Himself my God. I pray that you would believe that today. David begins by saying, God, oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. There's something in his heart that says, God, I want to see more of you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for you. I, I want to be closer to you. I know who you are, and I'm earnestly earnestly wanting that. The desire inside of David is a desire that trumps all his other desires. It's God that he wants. And he's seeking Him. He sits in the desert afraid for his life, knows that the bad guys are coming after him, and he wants more of God. He's not in this psalm saying, kill the bad guys. He's not in this psalm saying, rescue me. He's not in this psalm saying that. He's saying, God, be near. God, I want you. God, come to me. His heart longs for him. As I said, he may have been in the desert, but his heart was not a desert. Some versions of the Bible translate this word earnest for early. Your version may say early. The desiring of something early is an earnest desire. Many people see it to mean the same thing. What you long for first in the morning is what you long for most. I love it when Charles Spurgeon says, anybody who longs for God... Longs for him now. Isn't that a good quote? A lot of times we miss that altogether, what he's meaning. If you are longing for God, you're longing for him now. There's no way you long for God on Wednesday. Right? Oh, I long for God so much, I'll probably get around to it by Wednesday. No. Anybody who seeks God, wants God, earnestly desires God, wants him right now. Come to me now, God. And this is what David is crying out. Then he goes on and says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. David in these two lines seems to bring together the two aspects of the human that the Bible talks about. The flesh, our body, who we are, the makeup here, skin, bones, the soul. That which inside of us is greater than our, our physical bodies. That which inside of us that is more in tune with eternity than our flesh. This flesh isn't going to live forever. It will die and fade away like, like, like Jesus teaches, like metal and rust and moth will destroy it. But my soul will. David says his soul is thirsting for God and his flesh is fainting for God. He's that down and out in a sense that he's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Can you picture being thirsty without water? Have you ever had something to eat that's too salty? And you get done with that meal and you think, man, I'm thirsty. Somebody says, would you like seconds? You say, no, no, I just need something to drink. David feels like that on the inside. He feels like that on the inside. And he says, God, I need you to fix it. David knows that, that, that fixing the circumstances, bringing the water, getting him out of the desert, doesn't necessarily fix all of our problems. Every one of us have been there before. We've been there where we think, if you'll fix my circumstances, I'll be all right. Our circumstances change and we're not all right. You ever heard yourself saying, there's always something? We all say there's always something. So we don't need to fix the something. We need God. 
David knows this. His soul thirsts, his flesh faints, like he's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I went on my first mission trip after my first year of college. I went to Jamaica, and I'd never been on a mission trip before outside of the U.S. I went to Jamaica, it was a week long, and I loved it. I was introduced to things that I'd never seen before. It was so cool. When they took communion at the church in Jamaica, it was one huge big jug pitcher thing of real wine. And it came around to me, and I'm kind of like, I don't drink alcohol, what do I do? It came to me, I just sipped it down. That was a neat experience for me. I loved being on that mission trip so much that the next summer, which would have been the summer after my second year of college, I said, I want to go somewhere better. So they signed me up. I got signed up. I went to South Africa for two months. Jamaica for one week is a lot different than South Africa for two months. I went to South Africa for nine weeks. It was awesome. I loved it. I coached basketball, taught basketball for two months in South Africa. One of the coolest things I've ever done. I'll never forget that trip. I liked it so much that the next summer, now the summer before my senior year of college, I said, I want more. They signed me up for a three-week backpacking trip in the mountains of Ethiopia. 2002, that's where I went. It was awesome. They told me I better be in shape before I come. I thought, come on, college athlete, I got this. I was not ready for backpacking in the mountains of Ethiopia. You know, we had on like the $200 fancy boots that you're supposed to wear for hiking. Didn't work. Blisters, hurting. Couldn't even wear them. I had to pay a guy to carry my bag for me because I was too wimpy. <laughs> Lady, true story. Ladies that were barefoot would pass us on the trail. And I don't mean like marathon running ladies. I mean like 65-year-old grandmothers that were barefoot would pass us on the trail. I'm not exaggerating. The worst Ethiopian is better than me in college. <laughs> we had to hide, we took a plane to the mountains. From the capital city, we took a like a little plane to the mountains. We got out, we took a bus, got out, we took a car, and then they said we got about 24 hours of hiking. We'll just camp wherever we find. We did it. We made it there, but we were out of water. They said, well, we brought some water purifiers. We tried the water purifiers in the river, and they worked for a little bit until they clogged up, and we had no water. We had 24 hours to hike back. So we're hiking, we're hiking, and we ran out of water, and if you don't have water, you're not hydrated, and your body can't keep going. We got to a place on the trail in the mountains of Ethiopia where we could not go any further. There were three of us guys together. One of them had already gotten where he was unconscious. My buddy. We were so down and out laying there, we could not go any further. And we're telling our guy through a translator that we've got to have something to drink that we're out. He says, we'll go get some. Guy runs off. Of course, all the while the Ethiopians are like, you wimps. Because they, they were fine with it, and we were dead. So this guy runs off, and he runs back to a little village, and he comes back, I kid you not, with a milk jug, this part cut out, no lid, nothing. So he's holding the handle, there's no top to the milk jug at all, and in the bottom he's got about that much goat's milk that he just milked off the goat. He says, it's all I got. It's all we could find. He says, but there's a spring right up there. It's about two hours from here. Natural spring coming out of the rock. If you get there, you'll be able to drink all the water you want. 
See, one of the concerns when you're out of the country is that if you drink water you shouldn't drink, it's going to make you really, really sick. And so we were aware of that. So we found a way to muster through the goat's milk. And it revived us enough to get to that spring. And that was about 13 years ago, y'all, but I've never forgotten what it means to be so thirsty I can't keep going. I literally had, we literally had to have something to drink. We would not have made it. Praise God we did. You know what's true about your life? If you don't get God, you will not make it. You will not. And you might keep thinking, well, if this just happens, we'll be all right. You know, if I can finally just get this job or I can get this place or we can get this over with, then we're going to be all right. No, you won't. No, you won't. You need God. You desperately need God. You need God like a thirsty person in a land where there is no water to be found. You need him that way. And David is so aware of it. He's in the desert. He's crying out. My soul thirsts and my flesh faints. What I need is you, God. Verse 2, he says, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David is aware that he knows of this God. See, this is why he's saying, my God, because David is yearning for God and he knows God. This is not David as a lost person. He's not sure if he can trust God. David knows who God is. He says, I've, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've, I have beheld your power and your glory. He knows some things about God. He knows that God is the answer. He knows that God is his maker and his savior. He goes on in verse 3 with one of the best verses in all the Bible. Please, if you underline or highlight, do not miss Psalm 63, 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David is a man that praises God because he knows that God and who God is and God's relationship toward people and the way in which God loves people is better than anything God has made. Better than life. There's not an experience on this earth that is better than the love that God has for you. That's why Micah hit the, hit the nail on the head this morning when he reads for us the end of Romans 8, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And that's why our man Travis over there yelled out, Amen, when he said that. Because for us who are believers in Christ, when we say that God loves us through Jesus' death, there is nothing that can stop that. Nothing. And we are people who hope in the love of God for us. The death of Christ through the love of God for us. What might somebody say to stop that or to condemn us if we know that the love of God killed Jesus for us? We are safe. And David is mindful that right here in the desert, no matter what life could offer him right now, that God's love for him is better. He's not crying out for God to do a miracle and send an Apache, an Apache helicopter through him into the desert, pick him up, rescue him with unlimited ice-cold water in that helicopter. There's something that would be better than that for God to have his hand on him right there. And he's saying, I'm remembering this. Because of your love for me and your love for me being better than this life, I will praise you. 
And I want to ask you people, have you come to the point in your life where you realize that God's love is better than this life? This life falls flat. Even the good days can turn to bad days quickly. Even the things that we enjoy sour. And even all of the blessings eventually end. Did the funeral this week of Miss Addie Mae Powell, who was 95 years old. 95. What a good long life. 95. Yet even at that, her life ended. Family get-togethers, people coming. She was a Civil War buff, studying Civil War history, things like that. It's done now. And at this moment right now, the only thing in the world that Addie Mae Powell can find any comfort or pleasure in is what? God's love for her. Surely nobody would say to her now that she's uh, uh, been deceased for a week that, hey, you want to go get a Coke with me? Or, hey, just hang in there, you know, God's giving you a big family. Or, hey, remember all those years we had playing ball together? Or, hey, remember those years we had saving up all that money? Hey, what about all the money you got in the bank? You know, none of that stuff works when you're talking to somebody who is past life. We need the God that gets us past life. We need the God that offers eternal life. And the people that know that are the people that know that God's love is stronger than that. He says, your love is better than life. What is God's love? God loves us in such a way that God killed His Son so that He would not kill us as strong. That is strong. Greater love has nobody than this, that He lays down His life for his enemies. God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guilty man, Barabbas, right here. Innocent, humble, servant, loving God, Jesus right here. He yells out to the masses, which one do you want me to let go? They cheer out, Barabbas. Well, what about this man? He hasn't done anything wrong. Crucify him! And yet, as they killed him on the cross, Jesus reminds us, you're not taking my life from me. I'm laying it down for you. What love? David's aware of the steadfast love of God. And David's aware that life has its ups and downs. Not everybody's lives are the same. They all look different. But God's love is better than life. And because he knows that, his lips will praise God. Verse 4 So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. David just asserts what I hope that you can assert, that you are committed to God as long as you live. I hope that you're not saying, well, I don't know if I can make that big of a statement. 
Because in most of your wedding vows, you made that big of a statement, right? For as long as we both shall live. If you can make that commitment to your spouse, you ought to be able to make that commitment to God. I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. And then in verse 5, he says, My soul, I love this analogy, talking about good food. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David equates what his soul is experiencing is to when his belly is full. You ever had a good meal? One of the things I love to ask the boys is, what's y'all's favorite place to eat? JJ says, Moe's. Noah says, El Nepal. They just want chips and queso. Eli says, Arby's. I'm not sure what it says about me and Val if their favorite place to eat is Arby's. You ever been there, though, had a good, a good dinner? And you're so stuffed, and you say, man, that was good. That was good. You ever had a meal so good that you said, I wish I had more room in my belly, I'd eat more. David knows that. He's a king. He's had fat and rich food. He's been satisfied by a meal. And then he says, my soul feels that way. Has God filled you up? Spiritually speaking, is your belly full? Is God enough? Is this love better, than, better to you than anything else? Oh, the, the, the analogy of, man, this is how I feel. My soul is satisfied by God. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David has a desire for God in the present, but now it shifts to the past. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, he's moved from the present to the past now. And he's doing what is so familiar to us. We lie down and we've got so many things that we're thinking about. I'm sure you've had a sleepless night before where you just keep tossing and turning because you can't stop thinking. You're just going over things in your mind, your mind, and your mind. I never forget that time that we lost a ball game because they gave the ball to me to take the game-winning shot. And it's a horrible feeling when you miss it and you lose. If you'd have made it, you'd have won, but you miss it and you lose. Been there before. And you go home and you sit down or you lie down and you think, well, what did I do? If I'd have just done this, if I'd have gone this way, used my left hand, laid off the backboard, you know, you start thinking all that stuff. You're like, gee. David starts laying down and thinking about God. He says he's remembering God on his bed and he's meditating on him in the watches of the night. What's he thinking? Verse 7 tells us how you have been my, been my help. Then my help. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Have you ever stopped to think about how much God has helped you? I don't know if y'all believe it or not, but there was a time where I was a single guy, and I thought, I'm never going to find a girl, and I, if I ever did, all I'd do was mess it up. And it's probably God's plan for me to be single. I'm going through all that stuff. And now, ten years and five kids later, I think, my, oh my, God gave me Baletti. 
did God do me such a favor in giving me my Lydia? Has God helped me in a way that I can't even understand? I'm going to tell you all right now that if I didn't have Baletia, y'all wouldn't want me as your pastor. I wouldn't even be qualified to be your pastor probably. I probably would have messed it up so bad. When I think about all the ways that God has helped me, the list would be unlimited. And that's where David is. He's in the wilderness, but he's laying down and he's thinking... When I start thinking about all the ways that God has helped me, when I meditate on Him in the night, when I lay in my bed and think about all the ways that God has helped me, you ever think about your past? You ever think about how you got here? How'd you stumble upon that job? How'd you end up with those friends? How'd you not ruin it? How'd you end up with that much money? How'd you end up with kids so good? Most of us would have ruined things. And yet God has helped us so very much. David is remembering this. He says, you have been my help. I'm thinking of that. And then he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Even in the shade, David is happy. Even in the shade. He knows God to be one who has his arms around him. You know that God doesn't have wings, but God is a father to those who trust in him. And there he is singing for joy. Can you imagine being in the desert singing for joy? Can you imagine lying awake at night singing for joy? It reminds me of the New Testament where it says Paul and Barnabas got arrested and they threw them in prison. They beat them, then they threw them in prison. And what's it say they're doing next? Singing hymns in jail. I love that. See, Paul and Barnabas were thinking, the circumstances aren't what give us joy. I don't sing for my circumstances. I sing because of the God that has me, my God. And so they sing in prison. So he's in the desert running from the, the enemies. And he sings. Why? Because he's aware. He's mindful of all that God has done for him. He has certainly been his help. I want to ask you here today if not only in the present you love God, but do you look back at the past and how God has been good to you? Have you looked back at all the ways He has spared you? His present desire for God, His past experience of God, and then now verse 8. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Notice a clinging. You like the word cling? I do. I haven't been able to get Liliana to yet, but one of the things I do with our kids is I, when they're babies is I lift them up and get them to grab hold of the basketball rim, and then I let go of them and back up. I'll take a picture real quick. And it looks like our little nine-month-old is hanging on the rim. Well, she is hanging on the rim, but it looks like, well, it looks cool. <laughs> We've got a picture of all of them doing that, but Liliana hasn't done it yet. She's only five months. I can't get her to yet. She won't let go. But if you want to see a clinging, you watch a nine-month-old hold on to a basketball rim. They're clinging. Do y'all remember all the passages where God says to hold fast? Remember those? You remember all the passages where God says hold fast? Hold fast to the Word of God. Hold fast to His grace. Hold fast to His mercy. Hold fast to His love. Hold fast. David says, my soul clings to you. Have you ever clinged to something? 
Can you picture clean? I don't know if y'all have been down to that walking bridge that's across the river yet, but we love to go there. I love that place. It's cool. You can walk from Kentucky to Indiana across the bridge. Every time I go there, I always think, what would happen if I accidentally fell over the edge? And then I kind of picture this awesome heroic reaction of if I fell, but then I reached back while I was falling and gripped it. And then I think to myself, how long would I be able to hold there? Would they be able to get there and get me, or would I have to eventually slip and let go of all? So then I start thinking, how strong am I, tough am I to hold on? Am I able to cling? David uses this idea to his God. My soul clings. You ever, you ever, you ever gripped like that? You ever held on to something so tight that you're squeezing? I'm, I'm clinging to it. I'm not letting go. That's how David talks about God. I'm not letting go of God. He is my help. He is my God. His love is better than this life. I won't let go. But then, in case you think that it's all about your grip, he says, God, your right hand upholds me. I love it in Psalm 145 where it says, you uphold all those who are falling. Because we fall. We're not perfect. But He upholds us. And since God upholds us, we're clinging. Then in verse 9, He goes to the future. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, they shall be a portion for jackals. David here is in the midst of nations trying to kill him. David is a child of God representing the nation of God as the king of, of God's people. Opposing David is to oppose God. You must be mindful of everybody that opposes God is wrong. It is wrong to be on the wrong side of God. It is wrong to be on the wrong side of God's people. This is what David is recalling to mind. And in verse 11 he says, But the king, talking about himself, will rejoice in God. And all who swear by him shall exult. So everybody who, who trusts in, in God and the one who leads people to God is right. And God will get glory. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. David ends this knowing that the future will be God is right. And all those who are close to God will be safe, saved by Jesus. And all those who oppose God will not be they will be stopped. And I want to remind you of this same wording that comes to mind from Romans chapter 3. You don't necessarily have to turn there. Just listen. Romans 3 is where Paul is laying out his case that we all need a Savior. Romans 3, Paul is convincing us that we are not right and okay in and of ourselves. We have sinned against God. He goes through that passage that there is none righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It has in Romans 3. Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Listen. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. Say what you want. Speak for yourself. Explain it away. Make excuses. Every mouth will be stopped when it comes to God. You're either with Him or you're not. He has given Jesus to be a Savior. Jesus is a Savior to all who trust in Him. And all who come to Him, He will not cast out. They will not be ashamed. They will not regret it. But for those who don't want God, they will be stopped. God will receive the glory. David in the desert is mindful of his present devotion to God. He remembers God's past help toward him. He's aware of God being the winner in the future. David knows that God is his God and that God is his Savior because God's love is stronger and better than anything that this life offers. May you be one who says, I love God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you For Psalm 63, David crying out that he loves you, he seeks you, he desires you. God, I pray that you would give us hearts for that. I pray that our hearts would want you more than we want water in a thirsty land. We want you. God, we do do come here today with a lot of needs. But we confess today, I confess for all of us, God, that we we don't want you to meet those needs until we get you. You'll be enough for us. Oh God, speak to our hearts. Draw us to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to respond.